welcome to the, the second installment of Lit, 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 Lit uh, at Publication Studio this time. Taking a little break from Avenue for a little bit, but we've got an exciting night tonight, a great lineup again. So um, just a little introduction. I am Emma, in case you don't know me, and I am one of two who, with Steph Ling, who coordinates Lit, Lit, Lit series. And the, the series is pretty informal. There's no exact theme, but it invites writers and artists and poets to come uh, have an opportunity to, to, to read their own work and by doing so get to kind of explore the performative sides of, of reading and writing. So um, tonight our lineup is going to be, Ronan will be kicking the night off over here and then we're going to go with, no you're last aren't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ronan, uh, then Jujia, Jujia and then Brad, and then Ingrid. So they're all gonna have some, a whole variety, diversity of stories tonight, and we hope you enjoy. We're gonna have a break in between as well, so there's, there's concession tonight. We've got mint juleps on special, a la William Faulkner. So mm -hmm. yeah, we hope you enjoy it, thanks for coming up. Oh, and chapbooks, oh, right, this is Brad's book. Two things, yeah. two things. Um, so <laughs> this is also a big, big night, big night. We're chapbooks. Catherine here. So <laughs> the somewhat urgent series, which is Steph's publication, publications. There'll there'll be more, but these these little guys are little pocket-sized chapbooks, and they're transcriptions of the readings that we've done in the past. So at this point, we've only got two available: Cara's reading from from last from the last event, and Steph's reading from the last event as well. Hope to be making more of those. And then also, Brad recently published a really great book on poems here called Derby. And so he's going to be reading from that tonight and his book is also available to Katrina published, I should qualify. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I just and did the work. And some visuals too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So wonderful collaboration there. And for the chat books, if you buy a large beer, um, and those are $8 as opposed to $5. A special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, let's get started. Cool. You're up. Okay. Hello, everybody. Um, I hear generally when people recite things in front of others, they tend to speed up. So if I go too fast, just tell me to Yeah, I wrote this story sort of about a camera obscura that I made with some friends. Um, but it ended up having almost nothing to do with it. Um, and it's about a real guy, uh, Andreas Vesalius, who was an anatomist in the 1500s, Dutch-Belgian guy. And uh, yeah, he stole a lot of bones from different kinds of graves. And so I found that kind of inspiring. And uh, <laughs> wrote a little story. Um, it's called The Exemplar. You can speak and identify things by pointing and you will soon learn to read. And yet, you are still the most educated person in the market. Just yesterday, for instance, Marty said you beat her at chess. You are precious. It is now about five in the afternoon and the foot traffic will have dissipated so there's no real danger of being trampled. 
Of course, as everyone within a mile or two of here is like a family to me, you will also be watched over. The list I made you illustrates eggs, bread, lettuce, blood sausage, licorice, and lard. While each item has a quantity that I've made sure you understood in advance, I am quite sure that you will again buy more licorice than I have asked for. <laughs> Whether you do not understand how much a box is, or if this is simply your way of duping me, I cannot be sure. Maybe I will find out when you're old enough to read this, if indeed my imprudence in writing any of this down makes it past the cinders in front of me. Alid says I am reckless for letting you go in, out into the streets alone, and I cannot help but pay her more, more for ch chiding me. It shows how much she cares. If your mother were alive, she would never let you go off alone, let alone do the shopping. But you are my progeny. You will not be trampled, and you will not become a maid. Your impudence and cleverness will carry you through more than just the lineup and va at Van Wyck's, and perhaps out of everything, that omission in character is the reason that I'm writing you now. I had a premonition. I will not be sure, or I would not be sure how else to put it. I was standing at Tehoof's, watching the gulls pass over the harbor. A neighbor was burning something strange, and it gave off a blue smoke into the air. As I watched the birds and my mind wandered into the smoke, I found that my thoughts turned the same blue. I watched my triumphs cool until eventually they withered like salt fish. It may seem strange, but in that moment I thought of you, Gertie, your round rosy cheeks. I saw you as an adult standing on the other side of the smoke and realized, with the suddenness and clarity that usually accompanies pain, that you were like a son to me, or rather that, as my daughter, I have a respect for you that leaps over the confines of your age and sex. As my heir, I ask you now, in all the earnestness and gravity that a letter will allow, to consider the prospects of taking up the knife, if not as a surgeon in the public, then as a scholar and an anatomist. I'm not sure how you will do it, only that I know you are able, and ability is its own kind of duty. In your case, that ability is love. Love can take any shape, which makes it the only thing capable of opening every lock. That is the most important thing for a student of the world to understand. Love alone qualifies the soul. At a mere four years of age, you possess that qualification, and I see nothing in the world that should infringe it. Such love is perhaps most noticeably pronounced in your audacity, the way in which you glaze over the commoner niceties in favor of getting to the heart of it, how you put ham on both sides of a piece of bread. Yet, it is also your general care for the world that qualifies you, as if each thing were a small creature to be spoken to in hushed tones, no matter its origins or sins. These qualities should be a paradox, but in your case are two weights that balance each other. Perhaps they are evidence of a greater balance, one that compels me now against the law and the Inquisition to uncover for yourself the flesh and bones of this world. Given your qualifications, it is now my duty, in turn, to, rel to relate to you my own fight with the standard. Perhaps for inspiration, or if not that, then simply to share with you that one particular love among the infinitude that you are deserved, the love of the future. My story is of the Basel prison, and I am sure you will have already heard an exaggerated version by the time you come to read this.
So it is difficult to say whether my account will seem more or less believable as a result. I spent only one night there, but it seemed like a life sentence. An account for the, of the Basel prison for Gertie. I knew we were close by the smell. The guard recognized me and waved us over. I had never met him before, but he was expecting us and apparently knew my face from an illustration. His features were spread over his face as if they were attempting to escape. His friend was painting a sign on the gate and laughing as if his task were a great joke. The sign read 10,321. Neither of them bothered to explain why they did so or what was funny about it. I had to assume that it was the amount of inmates served. Considering the, time, uh, considering the size of Basel at the time, I was amazed to think so many people had died there. Uh, many came from the rest of the lowlands, I was sure, but to reach such a number, I had to assume they were importing from off the continent. That meant slaves, political enemies of the state, and spies, bones from the world over. The place was ripe with death, old and unburied, and the smell rose even above the cesspools that were located at the foot of the gates. De Hooft laughed, laughed amicably with the guard and we passed through. After lunch with the warden, we toured for an hour or so, talking mostly about the price of glass. He was a very proud man, proud of his lineage and his status, and very eager to distribute as much violence as necessary to maintain hierarchy. In effect, the perfect warden. He wanted his offices to be lit through an enormous blue window to honor his coat of arms, it seemed. De Hooft knew a uh, amateur glazier who could fit such a thing for much cheaper than the warden had expected. He was elated. When we had seen everything besides the inmates themselves, the warden left us at the gate and trotted off to a meeting with doubled enthusiasm smiling like a newt about his newfound bargain. To Hooft and I continued in silence. With the map I had drawn on a previous visit, we found the ice room in under 30 minutes. Among his sordid professions, To Hooft was an accomplished locksmith and convinced the door to open with a few pieces of wire from his pocket. There is something incredible and insane about breaking into a prison, but it makes sense. A person is just, or a prison is just as fine a place to keep something in as it is to keep others out. It was quite cool inside the ice room, but not cold as I expected. And the Clara story overhead led in a warm light into the blueness, turning our clothes an austere, surgical light. The stone floor slanted downwards to a small hole in the center where the water dripped out into darkness. An enormous flayed stag hung more or less crucified from a hook on the wall. It had been left to age and had turned a smoky gray along the ribs and pelvis. It would be perfect with another week, I thought. I was impressed by how sanitary it was for a prison, and I felt relatively safe knowing that no one would be coming in until breakfast the next day. Safe and quite comfortable, seated in a large wooden chair that I found. Tohoof sat on a block of ice, and we talked again about glass and windows, but were unable to agree on what either actually were, whether they were for looking at or through, or whether they were or have ever been transparent. For Tohoof, who dealt with glass every day, such questions were philosophical. 
We discussed our potential acquisition for what may have been several hours. I imagined my previous methods growing obsolete, the new skeleton in my future so clean and restored that it could have been embalmed. I reflected on my past like a devil, stripping the bones from the flesh with my hands, all of it a brilliant, impossible red, glowing and dripping. A scream cut through my thoughts and echoed through the hallway outside, followed by a laugh and the sound of footsteps running towards us. In effect, none of the sounds added up to anything predictable. I wondered how long I'd, I had been speaking, if I had, how loud I had been speaking, if I had somehow been shouting, if my heart was beating as loud as it seemed. I turned to, to Hooft, but could not see him. The footsteps ran past and turned a corner, disappearing. When Tehuft emerged, he was smiling. His smile was that of a jester doing handstands on the edge of an abyss. And I continue to wonder whether he's toying with his life for survival, in other words, on pain of death, or if it is simply to pass the time. By hiding behind the, the ice, he had proved his point about glass. Eventually, everything becomes opaque, even ice, even glass. He laughed. I was shaken and sunk to the floor, resting my forehead on a block of ice, so cold it stuck for a moment. I did not want to be tortured, but would submit to it if necessary in the pursuit of truth. <laughs> Ironically, there is, no proof, there is no truth that can be gained from torture, only unreliable facts. Torture is useful only to make the upper crust feel even farther from the bottom even safer from its own taste. It is something for wealth and comfort to compare itself against. A godless act proving nothing but humanity's ability to defy its own logic. And this I apparently said out loud, for Tehuf said, it is poetry then, but the poetry of stupidity itself. I had enough of this kind of talk and started to leave. The door was locked, of course. After a somewhat disturbing amount of time, we managed to push past the lock, quiet as a pair of dormice. The door swung open on its hinges, and all the muffled silence of the ice room rattled out into the barren hallway. The prison had changed overnight. It was like an exhumed graveyard, quiet in the way one rarely hears in nature. So we grew quieter still, retracing our path through the labyrinthine corridors with concentration. Twice we lost our way and twice we found it back. I wondered about the lunatic who ran past the ice room and unsheathed my knife. Since effectively robbing the graveyard of the innocents many years ago now, I have permanently bent the magnetic pole of my moral compass. With my improvements to it, I can find my way in total darkness. And with those same adjustments, I have lost much faith in the world's general sense of decency. Um, the main change is that I will not lay down the practice of thought at the feet of the law, whatever its argument. You will note, Gertie, that these are exactly the kinds of uh, thoughts that could have me killed, along with whoever this letter is addressed to. Perhaps knowledge is in itself a kind of impudence. My point is that even having changed what I once believed, I still know what is right, my notice from the law notwithstanding. 
Since stealing orphan bones in the name of a deeper and more abstract sense of logic, I have made a habit of concealing the full extent of my work. Not that orphans' bones will be missed, and what a sad thought is that, but that others' opinions take up too much room, and one must lead from the gut and not idle chatter. The sense of justice I take issue with is, in its defense, more convenient for its believers, but it is all the more troublesome as a result. The believers in this sense of justice have bought a just and routine world with their status. They live in a paradise of cleanliness, order, and innocence, but I live amongst the effluvium. That is what it is like to be a champion of truth. <laughs> with my knife unbuckled, I must have slowed down, overly cautious of slipping to fall on it, for Tehuf told me to quicken my pace. Finally, we saw the courtyard. I could feel the breeze wheezing from it. Tehuf pulled me back and pointed. There, hiding in the shadow, was a guard. It was the first we had yet to see. He was only a little taller than me, but wide and menacing in his silhouette. Like an arrow, my thoughts leapt the gate and darted to our prize, the convict drawn upon the courtyard wall. His perfectly preserved bones were sheltered from the sun and rain, but picked clean by birds, so that even in the shadow he shone like polished, polished china, the exemplar. Though he had been there for over a month, I saw in my regular walks past that almost the entire skeleton remained intact. The guard stood before him, barring our way. Yet I knew from my map that it would be impossible to go back. To retreat through the front entrance was impossible. We would have to wait again in the ice room, only to be discovered in the morning by the cook during the breakfast service. The only way was through the courtyard. I began thinking of a way to distract the guard when the shadows changed and I saw Tehooft walking for toward the guard with a torch in his hand. I waited for the guard to draw and kill the dear but foolish lens grinder. He took two steps and in a swift movement the silence that we had sweated to maintain was executed with a roar. It was like an explosion within a sealed cave. I found myself pasted against the wall, gliding towards the guard, knife drawn, but I could hear it. I felt, before I could hear it, I felt the sound within me as if I had produced it, but it was not me, it was the guard, and he was laughing. After a few hour-like seconds, I recognized the laugh. It was the same guard who had let us in only hours earlier. I approached with caution. By the time I had sweated enough to slicken my footsteps, Tehuft had convinced the guard, in his resonant voice, that we were measuring the head office in order to install a piece of blue glass. We did so at night, so as not to be disturbed by the prisoners, at which point the laughter escalated. It took Tehuft and I both to help the heavy-set man down onto his seat, where for at least two minutes he could not speak. Though Tehuft still owes me money, he's a reliable sort in his way, and I trusted that he was not lying to me, though it seemed unbelievable. In his brief exchange with the guard before I rejoined him, he learned that the entire prison was empty. There were no convicts whatsoever. We never found out why. Tehuft had his speculations, and I had mine. From his seat on the floor, the guard gave us a ring of keys to let ourselves out and curled up in a ball his laughter dissipating and gathering again, like a tide slowly going out. 
We found the courtyard in one or two turns that did not look back. From our vantage, the sky was starting to show aspirations of dawn, and I could not expect a pugnacious warden to show us the same good humor as the guard. Then we saw the exemplar, glowing like some new kind of diamond. After several unsuccessful attempts, I pulled the exemplar from the wall using a long, thin pike while Tehuft kept watch. I folded him into a parcel of cloth, perfect and weightless as a cloud in my arms. There, with the bones pressed against my chest, I was made presently aware of a smell that was very much like roast boar. No, it was roast boar. <laughs> For a moment I agreed with the Pope and thought that this transportation of bones should be banned, lest it induce the carrier to cannibalism. Strange what a smell can do. We skirted through the courtyard, through the empty gates, and saw as we passed the front again that the painted sign had been erased. We walked together until we made the dike and went our separate ways under the sunrise, smelling like cooks. That is the end of the story, Gertie. But like the stories of all doomed souls, there is a moral at the end. The exemplar has proved to be one of the first nearly complete adult skeletons ever studied by a physician, with thanks to the veracity of the warden, the prison, and the birds especially. Having since studied countless other bodies like it, and many that were barely deceased, I have still yet to find the soul. The heart, that quasi-muscle, carries little but blood. It is a clock, not a womb of the spirit. So I can only infer that the great force that carries us, the inspiration of the divine, the absolute love, spirit, and truth, exists outside of the body and only passes through it when the timing is right. Like water, the spirit is part of a closed circuit on earth. It may evaporate, but only to rain down again. Even in death, it will not disappear. When we disintegrate into death, we pass thresholds of awareness, narrowing at each ford. From your role in the expanse of your city, your awareness dwindles to your family watching over you. Then when you have no energy to give to anything but your bodily functions, your awareness of your family disappears. When feelings too are too great to bear, and the armature of the body breaks down, each department functions for a time on its own. The lung breathes for itself, the heart beats for itself, until those departments break down too. Then the spirit is divided into even smaller departments, like rooms, with their own concerns and private interests of survival. As the rooms shrink, they become darker and harder to study. Suffice it to say that we are never alone, because we are never really ourselves. We are simply the resulting surface of a system of infinitely divisible coordinates with aims and interests wholly indifferent to our own. I may die impoverished and alone on a small island, but I will feed so many birds with my corpse. <laughs> I am just a brief idea of a larger system, a passing fancy, a dream, a flit. What this hopefully means to you, Gertie, is that one's moment as the baron of these many rooms is extremely short-lived. One cannot afford to become the past. Like all God's creatures, from great, great nations to parasites, the past lives to survive and will resort to whatever slander, militancy, and coquettishness it can in order to do so. 
Perhaps for that alone I respect it. But we cannot lose to it. We must read the bones, like soothsayers, to have something to forge our love of the future with, regardless of the tempting whimsy of the law. It is only through our blood, our children, that we survive the past. And yet with each ruby child, each monument and name carved in history, we make more of it. Is it funny? I'm not sure. That's it. I'm going to be reading a set of poems uh, from a collection that I wrote called uh, Program. Um, I wrote it last year, and yeah, I'm just excited to share it with everyone. So, yeah, thanks for coming. By the border, patterned ferry seats, padded, uncomfortable. Dunnan, Renaissance, America, no, Canada. I'm certain it is one of the other, judging by the shade of these lamps. The space of the borderland, the particles of carbon, the odor of the Pacific shore, the boredom of the setting suns, the drowning whale drone. I am chained to the view of the mountains repeating themselves time in and time in again. There. Is spit on the ground. Oh. I'm in a city. Why? Because I see trains. Particles. Thawing eyes. Bodies of water. Finding channels. Made newly visible. I smoke cigarettes again. I forget how to smoke in the city where everyone is watching. It feels cold in my throat. I find footing between the spit. Patching, total loss. Flyers, great prices. 100 pennies, total loss. Flyers, advertising, great prices. I think about a fountain that people spit into for luck, stuck to the bottom of the endless basin. It has a wall. It passively means well. To shape the water, turning, running, in hidden pipes, lapping in on itself, around the periphery of an old highway, 
that we pass before we are sped out again. Blue-toned glass with three holes, white light emitting grease, on the patch where we litter, in the grass zone, a structure, behind in the wall, a packaging plant, with rafters made of glass, concealing the paper cups they make and are as sterile as their former factories that made napkins, greasy lips, steel exteriors, still. Everyone looks at the cylinder, the roof, the wooden gate, never looking at those things really. It is non-dash thing. It is non-dash purpose. Is this how it began? It? You? <laughs> yeah, everything is it. Even our skin, which has a life not knowing it, not knowing it belongs, not knowing its organ. I have been gone so long. You have graced, grace, <laughs> I've aged gracefully. <laughs> you and I drive to the highway together, passing a street in midair under another street with poles that hold up the stone we cross. One, boxes peeling metal. Rust puddles around a dike. Three, two trees growing into a fence. Fork, a circular steel rod mounted on a penthouse. I tell you stories about a highway because I don't know it. There is no history, only signs. I guess. What do we put words to then? When we get home, we walk up the stairs, past our kitchen table. It does not know us. It does not read us. It cannot say a thing. Right. Stephanie did a really good job putting this little book together. <laughs> <laughs> it's making it more organized than like me <laughs> digging through my papers. <laughs> all right, um, all right, here we go. Tall buildings, dynamic unity, static scholasticism, most definitely opinionated. I decide to peace out, dash, bye. <laughs> I say, bye. The world is full of moving people. I keep scaling these long stairwells. I look for the old self. Before each step unfolds, it sets me traveling down again, toward new. The weather shifts almost as quickly as my steps from a landscape that is pulled beneath me. The tectonic slate casts the earth aside. When I am ready to leave, I will say goodbye to the lighthouse. The one on the rock, painted blue, camouflaged with the ocean, set apart only at night, unique for a few dark hours.
corporeal versus virtual. The world is virtual. Cabinets of curiosities. Dense matter. Super virtual. <laughs> the world is at display to pursue with my eye. I care for things. I care for things that are empty or maybe already empty. I think such a piece in your house would suit you greatly, you know, in the way that it can be constantly curated, positioning things next to other things, seeing if you're happy with the relationship they evoke and so on. And when you are done with the thing, you can purge everything inside and look at the shelves of the exhibition of the empty window. Actually, this poem I was writing um, came from another series, but I sort of chucked it in with this one. There were homages to these views out of my window um, when I was living in New York, but the landscape was changing so massively because they were digging big holes and making steel things, and I was just, uh, writing poems to this steel structure every day, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but uh, this one sort of fit in with the series, too, so... Um, Okay, uh, they were called homages to views I swear I'll never forget, but I think I've already forgotten them, so. Okay. <laughs> um, Let me make a homage, a view I swear never to forget. The American flag waves in the push of the westerly wind. Behind it, a yellow crane stretches. I can't see Canada. I'm building another story in America. So here's to a place that is made for a new like an island that, like in life, is the only time we get to see through someone else's apartment. The smokestack looks the same, as do the aluminium shafts of two trains that cross one another. Man, I want a vacation. <laughs> I am in New Orleans. I am trying to find some fame. This is why I write, me to you from New Orleans. I am trying to find myself here. I find nothing. I omit that information. After all, no, perhaps I'm already filled with enough things to say I would have to remove one word to let another one in. One would suppose at least if I were beholden to the laws of thermodynamics, things could naturally shift, never needing newness. It is hot sometimes, <coughs> a day wishing I were on the west coast by that old rusty pipe. The damp would follow me here like a dog, from door to door, a cool refrigeration, dark, filled with old barrels and gone walls. I write you a letter. I leave the home every day. I leave on a map. Google has changed. Did you notice? It has diversified for a crowd that loves <laughs> diversification. I keep encountering the same map. I omit this information. Then I think about a crystal and whether I can see through it. So utopic it makes me ill. Map that, Google. Google Maps on command. It is filled to the brim with vocab. Translations, mistakes, images of art, charts, 
too. Nothing belongs to the dreamer. The painter concurs that this is how dreamers talk. He asks me if I'm doing fine. Google Map is telling me to look for New Orleans. I'm confused. But Google produces, even if a believable, most definitely an imaginary. Google has corrected my spelling mistakes. I stopped trying to find myself. I think you might learn more about jazz here, I write. Perhaps the software is right. I should just stay indoors. <laughs> I type my emails with typos. I wonder if there is another hot climate that wishes to cook me. Does one ever belong in a soup? I watch someone hustle around a pop, grabbing people on the side of the road, showing off the dollar and taking it from them. It's a good stupid trick. It's good here, I write. At least it's the way it is. Yeah, so I just got a few more. Really good. Thanks, guys. The painter reduces the world into a symbol except forgets how to map the trigger that sets it to change. The rock loses paradise from its pockets, soon as found losing sand from the pockets of paradise. The horse wishes the weather would turn better in a field littered with iconographic objects, to paint for the taking. I recall outbursts from the ground. I recall my flight home. I avoid certain conversations. I am an image. I accept that. I only take and talk of sensations of being looked at. Between the fault lines, the steel bullet pierced the landscape where no one got out, not even for a minute. I can't see things that don't look back, neither images nor figures, um, no figurative images. Images can't see images. They only see themselves. Yesterday, I had no spectral perception. I showed no signs of attention to that thing. No is a work of art. I Google an artist who used the word no in their art. There is nothing perceptible. Something to be felt, seen, touched, appreciated, interpreted. It is as if I was betrayed in a question. My caps are on the possibility of imaginary values behind big letters that don't apply to Earth or the roads we travel on. Everything is written in caps on the road. Stop. No stopping. No parking. No pausing for operators that navigate through this world and stunners looking to be blown away.